you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. So today I'm happy to welcome on Fernando Martinelli, CEO and founder of Balancer. Welcome, Fernando. Thank you for having me, Jamie. Nice to be here. So Balancer is a protocol for programmable liquidity, um, as it would imply it's a DeFi protocol project. And we'll unpack a little bit about what we mean by that um, as the show goes on. So uh, the reasons why I've got you on the show, DeFi continues to be uh, a hot topic, but obviously um, it feels like we're moving into a kind of new phase of DeFi. Um, you might call it DeFi 2.0, but certainly uh, an evolution from what we've seen in the summer of uh, 2020. And so I want to take the opportunity to explore you know, the, the role of um, DEXs uh, and AMAs in crypto. And uh, of course, you know, you guys are making great traction as a project. Um, and you know several uh, portfolio companies of ours are looking at collaborating with you, um, in particular around your um, LBPs, which we'll again talk about a little bit later, um, uh, launching uh, of new tokens, um, allowing for price discovery and um, uh, all these kind of good things. And equally, you know, several other projects, uh, reputable projects in space have leveraged you from Appy Finance to ensure. Um, and I also want to kind of get your wider perspective on, on DeFi, its direction of travel and and wider adoption in both a retail and institutional context. To give a summary of your kind of origin story, from what I could see, you've had uh, quite a diverse background. So originally you studied robotics and image processing at several different academic institutions uh, in Italy, from what I could see. Um, You then did an MBA um, in France um, at the University of Pantheon Sorbonne, um, which we are on scholarship from uh, Renault. You've worked at Airbus on flight control in the flight control department modeling actuation technologies, and you've worked at WEG in um, meteorology, including conception validation of high precision laser sensing measurement systems. Um, maybe we pause there because then there's some other stuff that comes after it, but maybe we, we kind of just touch a little bit on, on that background. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, I'm an I'm an engineer and always love to solve problems, and um, also have some some of the entrepreneurial spirit that I think um, founders share. So we uh, always wanted to solve problems that we have and and we see that are not solved yet. And I started that when I was 14 years old. I was addicted to Counter Strike. This, uh, I think it still exists, right? But that, that's a long time ago. Uh, it's, it was already like a frenzy. And I, I realized that there was a lot more demand than supply. So I started this cyber cafe 
with 22 computers and it was very successful, very profitable. So it kind of uh, gave me this, um, this, um, yeah. Taste and this was in Brazil, of, uh, right? Of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I, yeah, that was in Brazil. Oh, yeah. Wow. When I was 14, I started that. And yeah, I actually was on my father's, uh, uh, under my father's name because I couldn't start a company. So, so young, but anyways, I did all the planning and, and, uh, yeah, configuring the, the machines and everything. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of went on and, um, created other companies, studied, yeah, did an MBA and something you have mentioned, I worked as a consult strategy consultant at Bain company in Germany. So yeah, I lived, lived quite a bit in, in Europe and ended up going back to Brazil. And now I live in Europe again. So yeah, and, and kind of how maybe how crypto fits into this, this yes. story. Um, yeah, if I may, may talk about that. So I was uh, put into kind of, I was introduced to Bitcoin early or late 2012. And I thought it was a Ponzi scheme, like I think most people do or did. Um, and then I looked again and again. And the third time I, I realized the, um, like the, depth of the revolution that it would cause and got really interested. And then uh, I realized that and kind of a segue into how I think uh, about crypto in general and, and why I'm a, I'm an Ethereum in the first place. I, I, I believe, and it's still the case that mass adoption will come with stable coins. I think stable coins are very important in USDT and DAI, like all, all of them, like having more than a billion dollars in USDT, so much more than that. It's proof that people really want to have stable coins uh, on, on Ethereum or, or on, uh, on crypto networks in general. So yeah, that led me to realize how powerful Ethereum was when the white paper came out because I straight away realized that having smart contracts would allow you to create a stable coin uh, to have like positions and, and, and debt, um, and, and being liquidated. And when I saw MakerDAO early in 2015, I heard about them. I, I really, it really struck me like, this is going to be something big. And I got involved. I collaborated with a team when there were still like a, a few people. And yeah, this is kind of how I, my passion for, for crypto started and maybe kind of, uh, going to how balancer was created, uh, or how the idea came came about. It was um, 2017, early 2018. I was looking at the, all the discussions around AMMs and this uh, threads that Alan Liu and, and Vitalik were discussing on like X times Y equals, equals uh, K, this constant uh, function that's preserved. And I, I what I found interesting about that function and, and the idea of AMMs wasn't so much the fact that it it was allowing exchanges or decentralized exchanges to happen. But I looked at, uh, at it from another lens and it was the fact that it rebalanced automatically the two assets that you put in into that uh, AMM. That was a very simple one, which actually later on Uniswap launched with. So um, X times Y equals K means that whatever pool you create, you ever always have the same amount of value in, on both sides um, in dollars or whatever measure you have. So you have kind of a portfolio management system that makes sure that you always have 50% of each of the two assets. This is not so interesting from the portfolio management perspective or hedging or exposure to risk because you can't really control 
those weights or you, you can't really add more tokens. So that was what intrigued me back then. And I um, looked at this formula X times Y equals K and spent a few months um, doing some crazy thought experiments and ended up with a value function that we use for balancer, which allows you to have the same idea of rebalancing a portfolio, but with all the flexibility of choosing weights and also having more than two tokens. So you can have like five tokens and you say, I want to uh, have 10, 10, 10, 10, and 60. So that, that's the idea of Balancer. It's like this programmable liquidity protocol. Yeah, and maybe just for listeners that perhaps aren't as familiar with um, DeFi and in particular how a, a DEX decentralized exchange might function, effectively the automated market maker um, replaces um, where you would have previously had an order book on a centralized exchange. So you, you mentioned being inspired or you know building upon work both from Vitalik and then of course as you say um, from some of the first decentralized exchanges that come out. I see there was also a reference to Zargam. Is that Michael Zargam? Yes, that's Michael Zargam. So yeah, that's um, I just shortened a bit the story, but Balancer was born in collaboration with Block Science. Uh, I was working with uh, with Block Science and, and Mar- uh, Zargam, Michael Zargam, and this is where the the Balancer idea was incub- incubated. So yeah, I owe a lot to to uh, Zargam and the whole Block Science team. Yeah, yeah, Zargam's a good friend of of Outliers. Um, we've worked with. Um, block science on a number of different token designs and um they're of they course yeah, yeah big pioneers in the token engineering community so uh interesting to see the connection i wasn't aware of that um previously so um so as you say that then enables portfolio management liquidity provision and also the potential for kind of indices um could you just talk us through oracles? Yeah, uh, oracles, general. right? Could you maybe talk us through what this then balance uh, this kind of innovation then enables? Sure. So yeah, you, you can think of balancer in like th- that's something that is only possible with uh, smart contracts and trustlessness. You can think of uh, kind of a, a, a mixture or hybrid of uh, fidelity that offers index funds and NASDAQ that offers exchange uh, between shares or uh, yeah, uh, stocks. So the idea is that being a trustless protocol and using smart contracts, you, you can sell uh, or let people buy what you want to sell by setting up the right price. So it sounds a bit complicated, but the idea is that if... Um, if if you have two tokens and one of the tokens goes up, the price that your AMM is offering doesn't change until someone trades with it. As someone buys the asset that went up, then that, that works as like a, a feedback control loop where as you get uh, as you have less of those tokens in the in that pool, that gets more expensive. So actually the, the market itself, the arbitragers that are looking at all the prices in all markets like taxes and sexes, whatnot, they see that you're lagging behind a little bit um, and offering that asset that went up for a bit less, and then people can can buy it and, and that kind of uh, corrects the price. So that, that's the underlying mechanism. The amount of innovation or things that you can build on top of that is um, really kind of hard to, hard, hard to describe how much design space you have. And, I think the main difference, and you, you, you pointed at that, um, 
Jane, you, you talked about order books being an, an alternative to AMMs. I think the main uh, interesting point to, to stress here is that order books have to be actively maintained, right? If you want to market make, and market making maybe one step back is like you're selling for, let's say, $10 and you're buying for eight. So there you're market making. You're, you're kind of uh, selling and buying. You're not holding just one of the positions, um, but you're, you're really making money on the volatility. That's what market making means. If you want to market make on order books, you have to have infrastructure. You have to have a server that makes sure that you're not keeping orders that are stale, that are um, out of sync with the market. So the main difference between order books and AMMs is that order books require this infrastructure that you have to maintain and make sure it's live and up 99.9% um, .9 of the time because you have to make sure that as prices move, so do your orders. So if price went up from 10 to 20, your orders have to be 21, sell, and 19, buy. The difference between AMMs and, and, and order books is that AMMs are like the, the lazy way of market making. Actually, you don't need to update the orders uh, on an order book because you just put money into an AMM, into Bounce or Uniswap or Dodo or whatever, and, and those protocols are responsible for setting the right prices at the right moments. So the protocol itself sells for a little bit more than the market price and buys for a little bit less which means that over time, when there's volatility, prices go up and down, you're gonna make money um, because you provided liquidity. So that's kind of the main difference between order book um, based exchanges and, or DAXs and AMMs. So yeah, it, it kind of opened the, like the, the floodgate for lots of small people who just wanna participate in market making, but they wouldn't have the chance to have infrastructure or keep orders uh, on, on, on decentralized exchanges. Um, they, they just provide liquidity to Balancer and just forget about it. And then at the end of a year, they collected uh, a lot of fees. And it, that comes with the caveat, of course, that we should all uh, mention working with AMMs, which is called the impermanent loss risk. And I think, yeah, that's that's kind of another topic uh, in and of itself. But it's it's something that I always like to uh, to mention by when I when I talk about the fees you collect. You also have that risk, which some people see as kind of a loss, and I see more like as an inherent um, con consequence of rebalancing. So if you don't want to be overexposed, if you have two assets and one of them goes up, like let's say you start 50-50 and one of them skyrockets uh, relative to the other, you would end up with 90-10% of your portfolio, which is dangerous because like if that 90% like, percent of your portfolio token just crashes or there's like a hack, you lose 90% of your portfolio, right? So rebalancing inherently sells what's going up over time. And um, the fact that you start selling when the price was low, one-to-one, -one, and then as the price goes up, you keep selling, you keep selling. Then when the price is a lot higher, um, like in that, in that example, 90, 10, like nine, nine times more expensive, um, you, you, you just would have more money if you look at the nominal value, the face value, if you had held all those tokens that you sold along the way. But no one knew that it would go to nine and then stay up there, it could go back. So that, that's why it's called impermanent loss. It's really like you, you can't re read the future. Uh, so yeah, it, a way to, to make sure you're hedging risk is to rebalance. And that's, that's why the name is Balancer.
that that's where it comes from. Great. And um, and so, what are the other limitations or constraints of an AMM or a DEX generally? And do you think that crypto needs both DEXs and sexes? And if so, how do they interact? And yeah, what's your what's your view on that? That's a great question. I think today definitely both are needed. Uh, maybe two main reasons. First is scalability and user experience. Sexes have like a much better user experience because they're like fast and it's just web two. It's like just APIs, fast servers. So you like you can do lots of trades and it costs nothing, right? Uh, so they're scalable, which today decentralized exchanges are not, unfortunately. The other reason why they need to exist today is regulation. For many funds or, or, or institutions, they they have to know who they're trading with, right? If they go to an ex to an exchange, a centralized exchange, the centralized exchange is is kind of facilitating all the all the regulatory um, kind of environment that an institution needs to buy and sell. If you go to a DAX, it's just like a protocol; it's a smart contract. You have no idea who the counterpart is. So for some use cases, that's that's a challenge. So I think that today we still need both sexes and DAXs, but as we have like more scalability, ETH 2.0 and other layer ones uh, that are promising, who knows, like I think Ethereum has a very, very big um, kind of uh, head start here. So uh, as I said, I'm, I'm an Ethereum, I'm an Ethereum fan, but I, I, I never like to dismiss the chances of other uh, layer ones being successful. And maybe, I don't think this is a winner take all, uh, takes all market. I think there might be many, uh, or maybe a few layer ones that are um, kind of niche and still very successful and very big. Um, but I, I think that as we solve scalability and the regulatory um, kind of environment gets gets better and regulators understand better crypto and, and have clearer rules, I really don't see a future where centralized exchanges need to exist. Because it's, it's just like an inferior, like if you have all the advantages of sexes, like scalability, so uh, user experience, everything can be emulated on DEXs, and that can still be non-custodial, that, that's much better, right? I think the key here is that uh, if, you, if, you, if you go to a centralized exchange, you have to send them your crypto, it's not yours anymore, and if they get hacked or the, like the company just uh, rug pulls you, you lose all your money. And like, of course, there's contract risk, and if you go to a DAX, that can also happen. The, uh, tomorrow, there could be a, a bug on uh, Balancer or on Uniswap, for that matter. Uh, but that gets less and less likely as those DAXs get battle-tested and used for years without anyone finding bugs. So I think non the non-custodial characteristic of DAXs is, to me, like um, a major advantage that will eventually um, kind of... Um, make the, the balance go more towards DEXs than to sexes, which is the case today. And we've seen that in the numbers, like the, the amount of volume traded on DEXs has skyrocketed this year. And like some days, and I think maybe every day now, Uniswap is trading more than, than Coinbase. So yeah, that's, that's pretty, pretty crazy. No one would have said that one year ago, like let alone two years ago. Absolutely. And so what's your view on things like flash attacks and and 
do you do you see them as a bug or a feature of DeFi? Um, and you might actually be able to do a better job of explaining uh, a flash load and a flash attack than than I can. Yeah, uh, I I think it's a feature, definitely not a bug. Um, this is the beauty of of Ethereum smart contracts and atomicity. Like you can do a very complex operation, and if anything goes wrong along the way, the whole thing gets canceled. Right? You you can't do that in real life. Like uh, you, you want to trade uh, on on I don't know uh, DAX, which is the German uh, DAX, the German stock exchange. And on on Nasdaq, and and then you buy on one side, uh, maybe you lose the like you miss out on the trade on the other side. You just get uh, um, end up with some stocks that you didn't want. You just wanted to 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 trade to arbitrage them. So Ethereum allows you to like if I can't buy the other one, I'll just not buy uh, the the first one. It's a much more uh, guaranteed way to do arbitrage. So flash loans are that like you can take a lot of money and then do whatever you want with it as long as you give it back at the end of the uh, of the transaction then you're fine and we just have to deal with that all all protocols have to be created and 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 designed and tested and you have to do like modeling and you have to do like fuzzing you have to do all sorts of different um attempts of attacks because people will try to attack you in all different ways and it's it's clear that flash loans are the source or our tool for very complex attacks. So this, in my opinion, is something we just have to, to get used to. And, and we'll, we'll still see many more attacks like, like the ones we've seen in the, in the last weeks uh, and have been seeing like the whole time. It, it, it's, it's hard to protect against flash loans because maybe you're using a protocol like this happened with uh, BZX. They, they used Uniswap for, uh, as, as an Oracle. Uh, indirectly, I think, and and that Uniswap didn't have the accumulator idea, which kind of protects uh, against sandwich attacks or flash loans. Uh, and and you have to think of the whole thing, not only about your protocol. Uh, every piece you're using as part of your product, and we're doing this more and more. Like we're not creating everything from scratch. We're just building on top of other protocols, our tools, and uh, and that's that's what we call the composability, which is something beautiful about Ethereum. But that brings with with itself the the risk of uh, kind of a uh, uh, waterfall risk, like think, things failing and bringing down everything. So you have to think about all the other protocols you use, not only your protocol. So yeah, to summarize, it's it's definitely a feature and, and something new that we have to learn how to deal with. And so, do you see? You know, as somebody that's had to design something like Balancer and to consider the attack vectors, as you say, understanding that the strength of Ethereum and DeFi's composability also increases the attack surface. You know, how do you design for that level of complexity, um, especially when you have to then have consider considerations around the governance of how you respond to them, let's say the, a new innovation emerges that uh, causes uh, risk to, to your platform. And um, do you also look at these kind of things as ways of hardening the network? So actually by playing this massive bug bounty in a way or, 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 or you know, ARB, trading ARB game with with um, this network of traders. Do you think that that makes the system 
you know, more resilient and, and harder with time, more effective over time? Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's three main uh, areas to focus to mitigate those risks. I think the first one is keep things simple as, as much as possible. Of course, as we like develop new tools, new protocols, like things naturally get more and more complex, but uh, it's like the Occam's uh, razor. Like you should always choose the simplest alternative or option if you uh, if you have a few on the table. And you can you can make things very complicated and, and complex in crypto, but then you're you're like begging to be hacked or to to have vulnerabilities. So keep things simple. That's the first one. The second one is learn from prior or previous mistakes. Uh, hopefully from others, right? If you didn't have any any issues in the past, but you should learn from others. Like what caused the BZX hack or what caused, uh, yeah, whatever hack. You, there's so many in, in history that we had. Uh, we had we have to kind of learn and study all of those when we're creating new protocols or, or new things. And the third is is really the sure, making sure that a lot a lot of people look at your code. And you model things and you design things in a way that you can test and, and battle test all your assumptions. And there's like tools for that and companies that focus on that, like like Block Science and uh, and Gauntlet. Those those guys are really good at uh, simulating different actors, like actors that are um, malicious and and like many actors interacting with your protocol at the same time. Um, yeah, so I think those three topics are good ways to mitigate the risk. The risk is always there. So I think also you should have a, a proper bug bounty so that you incentivize white white hat uh, hackers as, a, as opposed to um, hackers that just steal all your funds or funds of your protocol. But it's it's um, it's a hard thing. And, and it, it yeah, as time goes by and your project didn't get hacked, it gives you some peace of mind. But as, as you launch something and, and money starts to pile in, then, um, yeah, you, you can get some sleepless nights. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I mean, and I guess I've, I've always said that the, the saving grace for DeFi has been that its economic load has been relatively light, you know, compared to wider crypto or, you know, any comparable, um, capital market. And so actually we can afford this period of experimentation um, uh, whilst it doesn't have to carry that economic payload. But I guess if you look at everything that's now happening in the wider market, you know, we're coming towards the end of November 2020. Um, uh, ETH2's launched, Bitcoin's just broke the ceiling. Um, and very likely a, a lot of Attention is going to be coming to the space, presumably a lot of economic load as well. Um, I'm going to get into that a little bit later about where you think DeFi is going to go if, if there's such a thing as DeFi 2.0. Um, but let, maybe let's just jump back to, to Balancer and the products. I know you, you mentioned earlier this innovation of smart pools. Could you talk us through those and uh, what they enable? Definitely. So I think smart pools are one of the best, like uh, greatest use cases of Balancer. It's basically the fact that pools can have their parameters changed on the fly. So and maybe like to explain that, it would be helpful to talk about the two native types of balancer pools we have. We have shared pools on balancer that are similar to what, what you have on Uniswap, pools that are not, um, they cannot be changed, so they're immutable. 
you can have any combination of weights, different tokens, but those cannot change. So you always have the same trade and you can have a trading fee that goes from zero to 10%. Um, but if it's a shared pool, anyone can provide liquidity and the pool is immutable. People do have, have that provide liquidity, they know this pool will not change. On the other side, you have the private pools, which are pools that uh, can change anything at any moment. So the pool can start with two tokens and then you can add a new token, you can change weights, you can increase the trading fee, you can do whatever you want. But since you can change anything, you could indirectly steal money from someone who also put liquidity in that pool. Um, by adding a token that you have 100% of the supply, you can drain the value of the whole pool. So other people cannot put money uh, or liquidity in that pool. So it, that's, that's why it's called a private pool. Uh, but then we came up with a very interesting concept called, um, or construct called smart pools, which is nothing but a private pool that's controlled, owned by a smart contract. And that smart contract serves as a gateway for other people to provide liquidity to that pool. At the same time, being able to change some parameters of that pool. So that controller can say, like, you can read my code. I'm a smart contract, I own this private pool. So if you give me money, I'll just put money in that private pool that I own. But of course it's your money, so you can withdraw it at any time. But if you look at my code, you see that when there's a lot of volatility, I have the code to increase the trading fee of this private pool that I own. So actually that construct is, is just like a shared pool, but that can adapt to the market conditions in known ways, like in, in, in uh, logical ways that you can read and make sure you're not going to be uh, kind of uh, stolen or you're not going to get your money stolen from you. Uh, and examples of that are as, as simple as a search pricing pool. So when you have lots of liquidity, uh, lots of volatility, demand for liquidity, you can just increase your fees, right? Because people are not so much worry, worrying or worried about what the fee I'm paying, I just want to get the price right now because I know price is going up or it's going down. So um, search price pool, like what we have today with normal shared pools and balance or, or Uniswap, it, it's really like taxis. Like whatever the market, however the market changes, those pools are fixed. They, they don't adapt, which is obviously suboptimal, right? So you should adapt your pool to the market conditions. Uh, another example, and, and that's something you mentioned that uh, is really catching on, a lot of people are, or projects are using, is this idea of uh, an IDO imbalancer, uh, an offering of uh, initial offering imbalancer, which we call the liquidity bootstrapping pool. The idea of a liquidity bootstrapping pool is that it's a smart pool. Uh, and what changes in that pool, it's not the trading fee, it's rather the weights. So you start your, your smart pool with a lot more of your project token. So let's say you start with 95% of your project token and 5% ETH, right? So you can, have, uh, uh, you can have a very big amount of liquidity without a lot of the money upfront because you're trying to sell your token for ETH or for DAI. And so you don't have a lot of that, right? So what you're doing is you start with 95.5 and then the smart pool, what it does is it slowly decreases the weight of your token uh, and increase the weight of DAI or ETH. And then you end up with, instead of 95.5, you end up with 5.95. So uh, you have 95% of the value of the pool in DAI or ETH and only 5% in your project token. And so it's, it's equivalent to a Dutch auction. The price starts very high. As the, the weights flip, the price goes down and people start buying whenever their price point uh, 
comes. So if, if the LBP starts at $10 per token, I think the right price is five. If everyone thinks the price is five, then uh, as time goes by, the weights change and the prices go down until people start buying. And then you, the, the price starts stabilizing because uh, as the weights go down and people buy, those are opposing forces. So um, yeah, people buying would make the price go up, but the weights going down causes the price to go down. So it, it's, it's kind of a Dutch auction. But it, the nice thing is that people who bought can sell, and it's 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 just just like any other balancer pool. People can buy and sell, buy and sell. Just the price is going down over time according to a schedule that the project defines. And the nice thing about that, Jamie, is that it avoids uh, bots that are really fast and buy price like tokens. That, uh, for example, on Uniswap, when you you look at the Uma offering. Like the the bot that bought the the bot that bought uh, the in the first block, they got like uh, I don't know hundreds of thousands of dollars just for being the first, and they dumped those tokens a few blocks afterwards. Uh, I'm not I'm not 100 sure, but th those bots that were the first ones got the best price, and then the price like five x, and they just made a lot of money with with Balancer uh, LBPs, liquidity bootstrapping pools. It's actually the opposite. If you if you buy too early, you're gonna get wrecked because the price has a schedule to go down, and this uh, makes for a very healthy price discovery mechanism. And people, if they bought for a price and they think, okay, now it's a good time to sell, they don't need to go to another venue, uh, secondary market, to to sell the token that they just bought um, in in this uh, IDO. They can sell back to the balancer uh, pool, liquidity pool. So not only you can buy, but you can also sell. And, and yeah, it's it's a trading venue in and of itself. Yeah, and as I said, I know a number of projects uh, within our portfolio are actively exploring this um, as a, a distribution event strategy. And what they really like about it is that um, it removes a lot of the complexity that goes with this from, as you say, price discovery, um, you know, having to worry about creating a, a, a bonding curve, a token bonding curve. Um, it allows for automated market making, something that they would normally have to contract somebody to do manually. Um, and, you know, allows for this capital market to form um, uh, in an efficient way quickly um and obviously you know most tokens that come to market they have poor liquidity price discovery is weak um so i know a lot of very excited about you know this is a way to kind of birth a token into the world and it allows them you know to kind of quote one of them it allows them to just focus on community and not have to worry about all of these problems that would otherwise um be had to solve for um so maybe let's let's zoom out so i mean firstly do you agree with the premise that you know we're moving into a, a DeFi 2.0 a, a new phase of DeFi following on from the server 2020 or do you, do you just see it as a continuum uh, how do you see the space evolving over the next 12 18 months that's a, a great and a hard question at the same time Jamie I, I think it's a continuum I, I I don't see like any event that kind of a watershed event that changed completely like the era of DeFi and now we're entering a new era um, I, I think that people uh, like everyone was a bit too hyped in in summer and of course the DeFi tokens went 
to very high prices and then and then kind of uh, people realize that maybe we should wait a bit more to see how this all where this all is going and if it really gonna it's gonna add enough value to uh kind of to justify all those these valuations uh and, and people also kind of got tested with all the uh clones and copycats and and anonymous teams that were generating those weekend projects that stole liquidity from Uniswap and from Balancer. So there, there's a lot of learnings there to like uh, rug pulls from anonymous teams. I, I think people are getting more mature and knowing a bit better like who to trust and uh, to do their due diligence before investing in any high API just because the API is high. Uh, people are starting to uh, take into account the risk side of the equation because it's always risk reward. And I think so far, at least in, in some, like during summer, the, the hype season, people were, were only looking at the reward side of the equation. Now people are looking more at the risk side as well. Uh, I, I, I think that DeFi is gonna impress us even more than it has already. The reason why I think that is, is that Ethereum is gonna, uh, and I, I said that on another podcast, I think Ethereum is gonna prove to be a, a great reserve of uh, uh, value as well. Um, and I think, I think we'll see a lot of monetary bandwidth as you were just mentioning, like so far, like it's, it's like a fraction or like a tiny bit of what, uh, we can see in the financial conventional financial world. So as more and more companies start tokenizing things on Ethereum and using DeFi, we're going to see like a lot of value and assets being used on DeFi. And I think. We are kind of the pioneers, uh, Balancer, Uniswap, and, and, and so many other uh, protocols that are leading the, the pack here. I think those protocols will be seeing enormous growth and there's gonna be new protocols as well. And I, I think it's it's great because we, together, like with Composability, we're all tackling different challenges. Like there's people doing insurance, people doing derivatives and, and DEXs and, and order books. So it's a community that's helping, like it, it's a lot easier to launch something on Ethereum because of those protocols that exist already and serve as building blocks. And I, we see Balancer as a, a primitive and a, as a building block, right? We, we want other projects to build upon, upon Balancer. I think we're less focused uh, on the end user uh, than, than Uniswap, for example. So I think we're more like this infrastructure layer for other projects to build on top. So yeah, I think I think like this is gonna impress us. Like in 12 months, maybe we'll be looking at DeFi and being as impressed as we would be if we were to look today, one year ago, like 12 billion, I don't know how, how many billion already, like over $10 billion locked to DeFi. No one would have guessed that last year. I, I think we, we're gonna be impressed. Uh, and now seeing all this bull run, uh, coming up and, and Bitcoin hitting new new highs and ETH 2.0 getting like released and, and launched, those things can be catalysts. And uh, yeah, I, I see a, a very bright future. No investment advice, of course, but that's my personal view. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to not be bullish on DeFi generally because the economic incentive. So yes, there are challenges, limitations, but there's. Um, this amazing brain trust of people like yourself um, being drawn into the space and there's enough of an economic incentive um, to solve the problem. So I think it's very, very hard to not be bullish long term about that. It's it's so much better, right, Jamie? It's, it's, it's obviously better. Like there's so many less intermediaries 
it's like it's transparent you can audit easily looking at the smart contract so it's a matter of time like uh people who control most of the money are like those like white guys in suits that are used to uh stock exchanges and and going to only being able to to exchange stocks from nine to five uh not a week so it's a new paradigm and i think it takes time to to adapt but it, it, it's clearly to me a a much better uh, alternative and option, and it will prevail and, and win in the short, uh, in a medium to long term, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look at the DNA of DeFi, it, it is designed around hyper competition because of its composability. Um, you know, if if something is suboptimal, something else can immediately replace its, its, its part in the stack. And if you compare that to the existing financial system, which is anti-competitive it, it does not need to innovate um it's uh you know it's impossible for for one market that does not innovate um that is not based on competition to compete with one that is in, entirely oriented around that um fernando it's been great having you on uh you both you and your wife did really well managing a child of three waking up in the middle of the podcast to, to, to manage that situation you had a bit of drilling going on as well you managed to get through it like a real pro so thanks fernando uh, so much and i'm really looking forward to seeing uh more lbps happen um over the next 12 months thanks so much jamie for having me here uh, yeah it's been a pleasure if you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.